What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Pinnacle Performance Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest for you all. Bill Hartman is here, who is the founder of this expansion and compression model that we see all over the internet these days. And Bill was kind enough to give us some time today to discuss a lot of the principles behind it. Uh, We got into some exercise selection stuff. We got into some of the theory behind the model. And I think it's going to be really helpful for people who are trying to put the pieces together and understand how they can put it to work for their own clients. So I hope this is helpful. I hope you enjoy it. And this was a really fun and exciting chat. Uh, So one thing that I've seen a lot and is getting really popular on the internet, I think much in thanks to you is rolling patterns. And that's something I, we use in the gym all the time. They're really successful and they get some really good outcomes. I was just wondering if you could give us an overview for what these rolling patterns kind of are and when you would choose maybe an upper versus a lower body week. Okay. Um, as much as I would take credit for influence, it's like, um, since the beginning of humankind, rolling patterns have been around my friend. So, so let's not, let's not, you know, give, give too much credit here. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons that one of the reasons that babies do this so early is because it's necessary. So when I talk about movement, I talk about shape change and, and, and propulsion. And so rolling is a, a representation of propulsion, which means it requires shape change. In fact, it's this exact same shape change that we would use for any form of propulsion, propulsion being in most cases, most cases, moving across the ground in a forward direction, okay? So if we're talking about crawling or walking or running, all of those things um, are, are very similar in their representations in regards to the shapes that are necessary, the force production that is required. And so, again, one of the reasons babies evolve this, this skill or strategy is because they have to learn how to change shapes so they can eventually be capable of walking with some measure of proficiency. And so, so that's one of the reasons why would we use it in the first place. Um, if you go back into like scoliosis literature in the 1920s, you're going to see rolling behaviors. If you see stroke rehab, you're going to see rolling behaviors. If you go back into PNF, which is 1940s when that evolved, um, you're going to see rolling behavior. So it's like, this is nothing new, nothing spectacular, other than looking at it from the perspective of, as, as I would say, the, the shape change and propulsion. And it gives us an opportunity to promote those changes that are necessary for people to move through space more effectively and more efficiently. So people that I see, and I see a broad spectrum. So I'll see anything from like a fitness client to a professional athlete to somebody that's dealing with a pain-related issue. And what we tend to see when people are, are incapable of moving effectively or efficiently or without discomfort, we see a limitation in their ability to change shapes. And so in many cases, um, these people need help. So they need a sensory input. They need a, they need a pressure um, that needs to be applied. They need a shape change. So when you lay on the ground, you spread out against the ground. And so that gives us some measure of compression applied by the ground, expansion of our body over top of it. And so again, all we're doing is promoting shape change that is going to be useful for us to acquire the appropriate shape for us to do something else um, and hopefully with, without discomfort, with an effective strategy that allows us to be efficient, effective, forceful when we need to be, et cetera. So there's nothing like, again, I, I hesitate to even remotely think this, this is kind of special. The advantage here um, is, uh, are, are you, are you a, you're a coach, right? Mm-hmm. You, 
you're yeah. not like a hands-on therapist of any kind. Okay. So how do you do manual, th manual therapy? I don't. Okay. But you can, if you understand the principles associated with, okay, how do I need to change shape? What shapes do I need? And then you can actually select a rolling behavior because again, all manual therapy is, is an applied sensory input. And so in many cases, many of the strategies that would be used from a manual therapy perspective are just compressive or expansive. And so there you go. Guess what? Now you have a way that you can actually influence the shape of somebody um, to allow them to move more effectively. Again, understanding how these strategies are applied, you use the ground and you use gravity and you use the mushy stuff that people are made out of that allows them to change shape. So now you do have a way to influence this. Um, so again, it's just, it's an adjunct to what I already do. So if I'm applying a manual therapy to someone that is useful and successful and buys us a window of opportunity for us to change their movement behaviors in a favorable way, I can't follow them home. I mean, I suppose I could, but it'd kind of be kind of weird. But so, so I need a way for them to produce this input that they would have maybe difficulty with on their own, and I can use a rolling behavior to, to influence that favorably, have them buy their own window of opportunity, and then maybe make another activity or exercise even more effective in this process. And so we can accelerate this thing. So again, it, it alleviates me of, of some of the limitations that are associated with this isolated treatment that I might do in the, in the new white purple room. And then they can take this home and then, like I said, they have a, a similar strategy. So what we're going to do then is we're going to have to identify what, the, what this behavior needs to be. And this is going to determine what type of rolling we, we're going to do. And so um, this could be like forward rolls, shoulder rolls, backward rolls, partial rolls, um, movements from middle propulsion outward, movements from early, movements from late. And so again, each, each one of these strategies can be applied based on, on the patient or the client's needs under those circumstances. So um, you, you, you wanna distinguish between upper and lower? Yeah, like, like keeping it relatively basic, like if you were to start with an upper or lower body. Yeah, okay. So, so one of the easiest ways to see this is, is to, to start directly on your side. Okay, so let's just say that you could be perfectly positioned on your side, okay, which is virtually impossible, but let's just say for the sake of argument, okay, so you got, let's just say you're on your right side, so you got, you got your right side down, and so your, your body mass is going to push down into the ground, because gravity works, right, and it's going to kind of smush you out front to back, so right away, so, so the people that we talk about that have a lot of superficial muscle activity, and they get compressed front to back, immediately they gain expansion anterior to posterior by putting somebody on their side. And we know this, there's, there's, there's literature that supports all of this. And then, like I said, gravity pushes down, that gives us a mushy spot on the ground, and that allows us to promote shape change. And then what we have to decide is um, what shape change do we want? And so let's just say that we were trying to move somebody into a late propulsive strategy. So a late propulsive strategy would be an externally rotated representation with a superimposition of internal rotation that, that goes from the top down. So this is like somebody that's pushing off the ground, okay? So if you were standing on one foot, if you're standing on your left foot, you'd be standing in middle propulsion. If you step forward with your right foot, the left foot would be in a late propulsive representation. So that's what we're trying to promote. Okay, and so if we're trying to do that from this dead on sideline representation, what I would want to do is I would want to lead 
with, with the upper body under those circumstances because the top-down mechanics would be represented. So this would be me moving into an ER representation with the internal rotation superimposed from the top down. So again, it matches the, the, the mechanical representation of, a, of an element of propulsion. So that's, that's the shape that we would want. So we want a little bit more compression on the backside, a little bit more expansion on the front side, and then this is what allows us to move forward. So that's step one. So that's your upper body rolling behavior. Okay, now let's go back to this perfect imagined sideline representation. Now let's just say that I'm trying to create a delayed representation. So this would be um, if you're standing on both feet, you took a step forward with your left foot and you landed on your left foot. So now the forces are actually coming up from the ground into the body. And so now I need to absorb that internal rotation and I need to have an expansive uh, externally rotated representation to superimpose that internal rotation on. So internal and external rotation are always there. They're always super superimposed until they become the same thing, but that's a different story. And that's the delay. So, so we're now creating a delay strategy. Okay. Now here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. When I was laying on my right side and I initiated that late representation um, with the left side of my body, the right side was actually in a delay strategy. So right away, I've got a delay and, and, and I've got an overcome, but, but for consistency purposes. So if I'm trying to emphasize a, a delay strategy, let's just say on the left side this time, um, I'm going to initiate that with the, with the lower body because again, that represents the internally rotated mechanics coming from the, from the lower part of the body upward. So again, the mechanics would match. So now I can roll in both directions, but I might have to roll differently I might have to initiate it differently because if, if I split the body down into right and left halves and I say, I always want a late strategy on this side and I always want a, an early strategy on this side, now I know how to initiate my roles. And that allows the, the client to understand, it's like, okay, you get to roll in both directions, that's fine. But when you roll this way, I want you to do the upper body lead. When you roll this way, I want you to do the lower body lead. And that's way, that way there's no interference with the, the intended outcome because most, uh, problems arise because we create our own interference, right? If we don't understand the, the mechanical influences that are going into a movement, we tend to do a lot of things that, like I said, we just get in our own way. And so again, this is a great way for us to understand how to not do that. And so again, it's just a matter of understanding a little bit about the shape change, a little bit about the propulsive uh, behaviors, and then matching the activities um, to those behaviors. Yeah, it's really interesting how similar it is to walking when you. It is walking. Down. So, yeah. so, yeah. so, hang on. So, let's, so let's 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 get this let's get this concept out of the way. Sure. Walking is a form of propulsion. Mm -hmm. Okay, rolling is not walking. Rolling is a form of propulsion. Crawling is a form of propulsion. Okay, so if you look at it from that concept, that's why the mechanics are the same. So the shape change that's associated with rolling is exactly like walking. If you understand what those mechanics are, if you're crawling across the ground, you have to use the exact same mechanics. Right. So so again, it's like it's like it's not like walking. It's just that walking and rolling and crawling and all of those other behaviors that get us across the ground in a forward direction are the same. They have to be the same. Otherwise, it wouldn't work because we have constraints. We have a physical structure of constraints that limits us to certain strategies. And so we only have a, a few ways to do things. And so you're kind of stuck with it. So if you understand what propulsion is, you understand what the shape change is, then you'll see like, oh, it's not just similar, it's the same. 
is there a general progression you have in mind in terms of positions? Like, let's say you got someone competent at the rolling pattern, you got the change that you want. Mm-hmm. How are you going to take that person from the floor to a more dynamic, upright activity? So there's, there's not really an absolute progression. They say, oh, if, if you're going from the ground, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. Because a lot of people just come, they're, they're capable of walking in the door, they're upright. And, and so uh, in many cases, especially in, in, a, in a fitness environment, they're not dealing with some pain related issue. They may have limitations, but they're not dealing with pain. So the decision-making is not driven like it might be from a physical therapy standpoint where the progression may be a little bit slower in, in coming to stand. But the real kicker here is the ability to apply force downward. And, and to do that without a compensation requires access to internal rotation. And so depending on how you determine um, whether your client has that capability, that's entirely up to you. Some people can throw people down on a table and they understand how to measure um, on the table. I don't think it's necessary, um, first and foremost, um, it, there, but there's certain activities that, that might um, allow you to determine this. For instance, like um, watching somebody perform a, a, a step up um, would, would allow you to, to identify the excursion of a hip joint that must move through the internal rotation to be able to do, this, do so. Um, but anyway, that's, that's going to be the number one thing that you're going to make sure that you represent um, or is represented when you're bringing somebody to stand, okay? Otherwise, they will be using a compensatory strategy. If you know that and you understand how to manage it, then, then more power to you. I think there's a lot more options under those circumstances. I like um, that step up but that's, say again. I like that step-up idea. Could you expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah, so, okay, so, so a step-up is, is a very, very middle propulsive representation. So middle propulsion is where the greatest demonstration of internal rotation would be. So the, the shape of the pelvis will be biased towards internal rotation. The ability to access the space below the axial skeleton, so that would be standing, okay, would be represented in that. And so to be able to perform an effective step-up, one would have to be able to push through the ground and then... Um, if, you, if we would talk about, I, I don't talk about uh, straight planes, and, but, but I can speak the language. So if we were talking about like a traditional hip extension at zero degrees, that would be representative of somebody that has enough internal rotation to, to push through the ground and, and then achieve an upright stance without a compensation, okay? Um, and so a step up is an easy way to do that, right? So that, that just requires enough, enough um, knowledge, understanding, and, and what would be the representation to, to show me that they have that internal rotation. Okay. Um, but that's the kicker. Like, like that, that is the, the representation that you need to understand how you get there is going to depend on the individual entirely. So again, most people that come into a fitness environment, they're, they're walking in the door, they expect to do stuff on their feet. And then, so what our job is, is to have a little bit of understanding exactly what their capabilities are, but that's going to be our exercise selection. So let's just say for the, for the sake of argument that you do have somebody, you do the little step-up test and you go, you know what? They don't really have enough internal rotation to perform that activity without a compensation. You've just eliminated a lot of middle propulsive activities from your repertoire of exercises that you're going to choose because if they don't have that capability, that means they will have to use a compensation, which means they will have to create compression in certain places and expansion in certain places to move through space doesn't mean they can't do that, just means that we want to choose exercises that do not challenge that space because they cannot access it. 
okay? Yes, they can stand up, I understand that, but they're gonna to have to do that with some form of an anterior orientation of the pelvis, which is going to change an orientation of the spine, which again, under load becomes a little bit of a problem. And it might not be recognized today, tomorrow, or next week, but over time, if they continue to use that strategy, it could become problematic. So again, tr trying to come up with a singular strategy to get somebody from the ground upwards um, is gonna be dependent on the individual. There's, there's variations in structure, there's variations in strategy that are gonna influence someone's capability of managing gravity. We just have to protect them from themselves. Everybody has superpowers, but left alone, those superpowers will destroy you. I remember hearing you say something once and it really stuck with me. And I probably say some variation of it once a week in the sense of if you see where someone's trying to find their internal rotation, you solve a lot of problems. And that is, that was like, that's, that summarizes a lot of it. Obviously it's not always that simple, but I was like, wow, that, that really is it, isn't it? If you try to find where that's coming from, then a lot of the times you're going to address a lot of issues. Yeah. And again, and I, I'm going to use the representation of, of somebody that's dealing maybe with a pain related issue under many circumstances. Those are, those are excessive um, compressive strategies. So they're, they're under compression for an extended period of time or they can't select another movement option because they just don't have the capacity to do so. Most of those are going to be under high force. Well, internal rotation is where the highest force is applied. And so again, when we see compensations for a lack of internal rotation, which would be forced downward. So these are movements that would fall under the traditional um, extension-based activities, internal rotation-based activities, and adduction-based activities by traditional viewpoints. Um, anytime you would see a compensatory strategy for that, that is somebody that is compensating for a lack of internal rotation and then explains a whole lot as to why people walk in with a little bit of a wonky knee or they get a little bit, little pinchy in their hip or they feel that pressure in their low back when they do their overhead press or something like that. So just a little bit of awareness goes a long way where you can protect your clients from themselves. And like I said, it just comes down to exercise selection, understanding where they have access to spaces and then don't take them where they don't have access yet. Doesn't mean they can't develop it. Doesn't mean they can't evolve it. It just means you got to protect the client from themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note of these uh, compressive strategies that people tend to walk in with, I think one thing that uh, I like about your model is that you have sequential layers of these things that that happen and obviously depends on the individual and their body shape and all that um, i was wondering if you could expand a little bit upon um, the difference between upper and posterior compressive strategies two terms i hear you use quite a bit and the idea of how they are represented within the pelvis and the thorax and another question i had on top of that if it's not too much would be like are these happening simultaneously or are they happening one after the other like how does that work and what are the differences okay so the the simple answer is yes they're happening simultaneously but in a sequential nature because of the way that that fluid volumes move inside of the human body. So let's just use the lungs for an example. So you're standing upright, gravity works, you breathe in, the lungs fill from the bottom up, okay? But as I fill the lungs from the bottom up, I'm also applying pressure into the abdomen. So the pelvis and the thorax are changing at the same time. Okay, so, so they are simultaneous and sequential from the bottom up. Generally speaking, there's there's a few exceptions to the rule based on the initial structures, 
Um, but generally speaking, the, the sequence of events from bottom and top will be the same. Now, when you're talking about this superficial compressive strategy, so you, you spoke with a conflict of, of thought here. So let's clarify this. You want me to distinguish between an upper compressive strategy and a posterior lower com compressive strategy, or you want to know about the two posterior lower compressive strategies? The former. Okay, so that so let's see. Former is the first one. Okay, <laughs> so um, we can we can make some anatomical delineations between where we're going to make a cutoff between like an upper and a posterior lower. Mm -hmm. Okay, the thorax is the easiest place to see this because everything's bigger in the thorax, so the spaces in the pelvis are very very small where this would happen. We can still identify them, um, but it's just easier. So if, if we look at the, where the, the inferior of the angle of the scapula would rest. So it's going to be about the eighth rib or so. And then, so anything above that is going to be considered um, the, the dorsal rostral area. So that's going to be an upper part of the thorax. Anything that's below that is going to be a posterior lower representation. The reason we do this is because there's actually anatomical delineations in embryology that would be associated with, with how this stuff is divided. And so it, 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 it's a little bit of a helper with us as far as distinguishing where these compressive strategies are going to be because it also affects where I'm gonna see limitations in movement capabilities. So, so as one area is compressed, I'm gonna drop off uh, range of motion capabilities. So if I'm, if I'm looking at like a dorsal rostral space, any compressive strategy in dorsal rostral space, I'm gonna lose um, external rotations um, through sort of the middle ranges of where you would typically, like, again, I, I make reference to table tests all the time. So where you would typically measure your shoulder internal and external rotation. So if the arms were, if you were standing upright and your arms were pointed straight out to your side, so it would be losing external rotation in that range. Okay. Um, and, and so again, that's going to identify where that upper, upper uh, measure would be. Anything below that is going to reduce external rotation as well, but it's going to be in, in the lower ranges um, that we would typically see. So if we're talking about like what would be um, termed by traditional shoulder flexion. So the, as I initiate the arm upward from my side, that early range of, of ER is going to be moved away from midline. So it doesn't, it's, it's not gone. It's just in a different place. So we're talking about changing spaces here. So again, if I compress posterior lower, external rotation just moves away from midline. So it's out to the sides. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yep. Yep. And within the pelvis, uh, where do you draw that differentiation between upper and lower? Um, typically, typically where it's going to be, it's going to be probably right around where you're going to see the, the delineation between the ilium and the ischium. Okay. So the, 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 the pelvis is made up of multiple bones. It looks like one, um, when you look at just one innominate, um, but, but it's going to be roughly around that general vicinity. Got you. Got Actually you. a little bit lower than that. But again, it's, it's like, we're talking about, you know, the, like the, almost the length of the scapula for dorsal rostral. And you look at the same space on the backside of the pelvis. And it's like, you know, I could, I could put it between two of my fingers right there. You know, it's, it's a very small space. Got you. And I, I can imagine a question that might come up, uh, would be if you have this upper and lower compression, let's say someone's got upper and are you going to see the same losses in the pelvis and the thorax in terms of external rotation that you yeah. would see in the thorax? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's cause it's, it's just, it's just a repeating anatomical representation. So, um, because both, 
um, both iterations are, are of, of the anatomy are, are they, they're structured the same way. They behave the same way under the same circumstances. The same circumstances are being applied in the thorax and in, and in, in the pelvis so that they're going to be seen at the same time. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, something that we also touched on a little bit earlier, since we're on this topic, would be you said two different types of posterior lower compression. What are, what are the differences between those two? Um, oh, are we, are we talking about like, are we going to go into archetypes here or, or, or which? Yeah. Is that what we're talking about? Okay. Hang on. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So this goes, this goes to somebody's physical structure. So, um, so I took a bunch of information and basically created two separate archetypes. And, and these are just basically represented by, by physical structure. There are very, very strong biases in, in many cases, but we can, we can mix it down. I mean, and the, keep in mind that there's an infinite spectrum of representations. What we're looking for is, is a bias to help us establish some initial conditions when we're working with somebody, because if we know where we started, we know where they are, we know how they got there. And that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about the superficial strategies. And so we'll have people that are biased by their physical structure um, to be um, what, what I would refer to as exhalation bias. So, so their, their whole system is much better at squeezing air out than taking air in. And then we have the opposing strategy, which is somebody that is better at taking air in than squeezing air out. And because of that, and because of the, the internal dynamics of how we take air in, there will be different spaces that, that will be expanded, um, that will uh, keep that posterior lower strategy either compressed or expanded from the, from the initial conditions. And so again, somebody that would be, say, uh, um, what I would refer to as a wide infrasternal angle individual. So they're gonna be somebody that is exhalation biased. They use a lot of high pressure um, strategies. Okay, these, these typically are gonna be your people that are good force producers. Um, and, and so what we will see in that posterior lower is that's going to actually remain expanded. And again, this just has to do with internal dynamics alone. Um, and so when they're applying their superficial compressive strategies, they have a, a little bit of an alteration in the sequence in relative to the other, which again, because they are better uh, inhalers than exhalers, they capture an expansion in a different location. So, so they would actually have more anterior expansion um, in, in their situation. And so their posterior lower um, starts at a deficit. So it does not have the expansion that we would see in, in the wide ISA individual. Now, keeping in mind that the, the general sequence is about the same, it just has a little bit of a different starting condition. So it looks a little bit different, but when you get to the, to the end game, so to speak, where all superficial strategies are being applied, they kind of look the same. And again, with small differences in structure, but those are pretty easy to delineate. Yeah, and then I guess that makes sense as to why people that are older in nature had a lot of time spent under gravity and under different conditions. You tend to see this hunchback in Notre Dame, so to speak, and that would be a representation of that late stage. That would be a, that'd be a representation of being crushed by gravity, okay? That's what kills you eventually. So, you know, we have all these nice diseases and everything, but all you got to do is spend a week at the nursing home and, and you'll see um how gravity will eventually end you yeah i got i got a question on this uh wide versus narrow thing how many people do you think are if obviously there's a spectrum you touched on i think it's important to respect that but in terms of how many wides and narrows are out there i think when i first started hearing about this stuff i looked at everyone thought they were wide 
And the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that it's actually not the case. And I actually tend to see that more people tend to be, at least that come into this gym, are more of the narrow end of the spectrum. Do you think that there is, there is a bias towards a narrow ISA just in human populations? I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Okay, so, so here you go. Let me, let me just add to your confusion. Right. If you're standing up on Earth, you're you are in an internal rotation bias because you have to apply force to the ground. Okay. So anatomically, um, you you have to create some form of internal rotation strategy that would seem to bias towards a, a wide ISA representation. That's a force production into the ground. Right. I need IR. They they would be biased more towards IR. However. Um, to me to remain upright and expanded so i have to i have to be able to lift myself away from the ground i also have to have an inhalation bias and so under those circumstances if you were to look at um, any uh, uh, respiratory physiology textbook you will see that humans are biased towards inhalation in the lungs so so at rest if you were to breathe your tidal volume and not do any sort of forced inhalation or exhalation, you would be biased towards an inhale. So there you go. So, so now we've got a nice little mixture of like, well, which one are you? And it's going to turn out that it will be structural that where, where you're going to shift your bias. Um, I think we also get our, our, our cognitive bias is that it's going to be driven by the population that we see. And so if you attract a certain type of client, guess what you're going to see? Right. So yeah. So if if uh, let's just say that I work with uh, high school female volleyball players. OK, um, guess what you're going to see? You're going to see all narrow ISS. OK, and then um, I decided to change my environment. I moved to uh, Columbus, Ohio, and I start working with powerlifters and then everybody's a wide. OK. So again, I think I think we get biased by population. You know, if, if there's 7.7 billion people in the world, um, we're probably going to cancel to zero, right? So we're going to see probably, and again, keeping in mind that you've got this full spectrum of of possibilities between the the extremes. Um, I don't think I don't think we have any one particular bias um, unless somebody's reproducing children more than somebody else is, you know, because that's where it's going to come from anyway. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I suppose, yes, in this, in this gym in particular, we see a lot of narrows who are in pain. Like this is like quote unquote, a functional fitness gym. Like that's the, that's the marketing tactic at least. But one thing that, that we see a lot on that note are these, very late stage, as you would probably refer to them, in-game narrow ISAs. And those tend to be the hardest people to work with. And I was having this conversation earlier with actually a couple of people. And it's, it's really interesting because it seems to be this one type of, of narrow ISA that seems to be the hardest. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. It seems to be these people that you just walk in and uh, you can't really pinpoint exactly what it is, but they just kind of have these pear-shaped bodies. They tend to have a really hard time with sensory motor activities. They tend to just have awkward movement. And you, you kind of know what I'm, what I'm touching on here? 
yeah. in terms of like this type of a person. And it's really hard yeah. to get them to change. It's really hard for things to stick. Yeah. And those tend to be very challenging individuals. I'm curious, like, how do you go about that type of person? Well, the, the reason that the reason that they're challenging is because they they have the the least favorable genetics for managing gravity. Okay. So you have somebody as a narrow ISA, so they're going to be biased towards an inhalation strategy, which means that they are low pressure internally. So, so they don't produce a lot of internal pressure, which means that they don't produce a lot of force. So right off the bat, gravity is going to win. Okay. Now, so how do you produce pressure when you don't produce pressure very well? Well, you increase the superficial musculature activity, and then that creates the anterior posterior compressive strategies that we always talk about that steel ranges of motion. So they can squeeze themselves from the outside in, and then now they do have some pressure management capability at the sacrifice of ranges of motion. And so they're going to be applying pressures and tensions and such because they have limited movement capabilities. They're going to limit their movement options. And so imagine having only one way to do something, then you are constantly going to put pressure and tension in the same place over and over and over again. So that's why they tend to have a lot of discomfort. Now you take a configuration problem in relative to the axial skeleton. So I have a thorax that is relatively small in circumference. I have a pelvis that's relatively large in circumference. So what this actually does is it biases the internal dynamics downward. So now I got gravity pushing me down. I have my innards that are accelerating. Actually, it's probably not acceleration. It's probably just velocity. So I got the high velocity um, strategy that's going on inside of me that is everything's going downward and I don't have the strategy that I can push into the ground and push back upward. So that's why these are so challenging. So these might be the people, let's go back to the beginning of the conversation. These might be the people that really need to spend more time on, on grounded type activities where they have to learn how to manage their shape in a gravity reduced situation first and then you sort of build them back up. So they are the most challenging, but it's it's pure structural. It's not their fault. Um, and imagine, so if, if you're getting shoved into the ground, um, you would be able to feel pressure, but you probably wouldn't have a lot of refined sensation under those circumstances because all you're trying to do is squeeze yourself in so you can stay upright against gravity. That makes Perfect sense. And personally, that clears some things up for me just in terms of how that body dynamic is going to work and create that type of presentation. That's, that's, thank you. I've, I've been, I've been thinking about that for a couple of weeks now. Um, if you're cool with it, I would like to shift gears to, to something else that I've heard you speak on before. And it's uh, this idea of, I think people find this really interesting. I've heard you say that a lot of traditional stretches, like static stretches, are actually concentrically orienting some muscles, maybe not all the time, but frequently we see all that all the time. Okay. And then can you expand upon that? Like the, 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 the time I heard you say it was like a doorframe pec stretch and how that's actually yeah. the inverse. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a pretty hot blonde in that video, if I recall correctly. Um, <laughs> yes. Okay. So let me, let me just make a statement and then it'll become very, very clear eccentrically oriented muscle has no tension on it. Mm. Concentrically oriented muscle does, okay? If I have a compressive strategy that is a concentrically oriented muscle, okay? So if I was to try to stretch an eccentrically oriented muscle, 
I wouldn't feel anything until I got to the very end and then the connective tissues would kick in, but I would be demonstrating a full excursion of what would be traditional joint range of motion. So if I have limited joint range of motion and I am trying to apply pressure to a muscle to make it longer, good luck with that. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You can't, you, you're, and, and here's what we know. And this is in the, like, this is, this is, this is ubiquitous in the, the stretching literature is there's no change in the stiffness of a muscle after mm -hmm. you perform a static stretch. Okay. And so what you're getting is you're getting a connective tissue based yielding action in the connective tissues, which is temporary, which is why if you stretch once and you make any measurable gains, which good luck with that, you're not going to make much. Okay. Um, you, you, you make a miserable gain. It doesn't stick. You have to do it again. You have to do it again. It's, it's the people that come in and say, oh, I always have to stretch my hip flexors. Oh, I always have to stretch my pecs. Well, the reason that you have to stretch them is because they're concentrically oriented and they're not changing. Okay. You're creating a yielding action, but this also just like when we talk about performance, this also describes why you see the power decrement that's associated with static stretching. Cause you're creating a yielding action in the connective tissues, which is what I need to store and release energy. But if I get a yielding action, so I hold that long enough where I get the elongation of connective tissues, I don't get the overcoming action that follows, which is actually the release of energy. So you see the power decrement. Now, what happens after a period of time or after a dynamic warmup, you regain the power element of it because you just recaptured the, the connective tissue behavior that you used with the static stretch in the first place. Now, does that mean that static stretching is useless? Absolutely not. It just means that what you think it's for, it's not for. Okay. So static stretching is specifically to improve the yielding capabilities of connective tissues and to increase your pain tolerance. What you may gain from that is what's called a flexibility reserve. So if I was to take you and I was to yank you into a stretched position, you may have a flexibility reserve that can protect you because you have captured the yielding capabilities of those connective tissues, okay? Yeah. But is it, and again, this is, it, it, it's not hiding, it's not hiding anywhere. Um, it's in the literature. You can see all this. You just have to put the pieces together and, and actually see it for what it is. We should just blast that all over the internet because that's well, just... you know, okay. But see, and then then people will say, but but look at all the right. range of motion that I gained. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. you think you're doing you think that you're performing a stretch for a muscle. Okay, guess guess who created the concept of muscles? Humans did that. It's like, yes, we're made of stuff, but we're the ones that gave it a name. And so you say, well, I'm stretching a quadriceps, I'm stretching a calf, I'm stretching a hamstring, I'm stretching a pec. The reality is, is that you're promoting a shape change that may actually be favorable in the end, but the actual muscle that you're yanking on is not where you're going to make the change. You're going to make the change in some other way, shape, shape or form. And I'm, I'm, I'm making a pun there, shape or form. You're going to make a shape change that's going to allow you to access ranges of motion. What you should notice though, is that as you achieve that range of motion, there will be no sensation of stretching. That would be an eccentrically oriented muscle. And then you actually made the appropriate shape change. You actually expanded the muscle. You reduced the internal pressure in that muscle itself, allowed it to expand and allowed you to access that range of motion with no tension at all. Which is why when you do make a favorable shape change, that's why the, the, the motion feels easy and effortless, okay? If you're yanking and pulling on things and you're expecting that muscle to change, good luck. It's not going to happen. That was awesome. Thank you.
Yeah, that was, that was, that was really helpful. And I think that that, that speaks to a lot of exactly what you said in terms of people that come in, they say, I need to stretch my hip flexors every day to feel five minutes right. of relief. And then it just, and this, but, but see, it's, it, it's, it's, it's the story that they have in their head. It's the model that they, they think that they understand. It's like, okay. Um, so muscles have always been compared to rubber bands and they're not okay. They're not rubber bands. They're not leather belts. They don't change that way. Okay, muscles are electric. If I keep the juice going to the muscle, guess what it's gonna do? It's gonna remain active. And there's no amount of static stretching that's going to, to impact that to any significant degree. I, I am influencing tissues in, in a way. Is that favorable? In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. We just have to, have to be a little bit more clear about what our intentions are. Then we can select the appropriate interventions. And again, it's just that, that this has been ubiquitous since the beginning of time. You know, uh, it, I, I always tell funny stories about anatomy. It's like, you know, the, the, the first guys that, that got to name the stuff, right? Um, they, called, they called a muscle something, okay? So let's just say gluteus maximus as a muscle, right? They said it was a muscle. And so 2,300 years later, after those first anatomical dissections, we're still calling it a muscle when we know full well that the behavioral capabilities of this thing is like so many muscles, right? And so again, it's, this is the story that we've, we've created. This is the story that gets perpetuated. Unfortunately, it's not as close to reality as we would like it to be. Doesn't make it useless. Just means that we're probably a better answer. And that this is the same thing with static stretching. Is it useless? Absolutely not but let's use a better answer for it and use it in the right circumstance under the right conditions for the right reason. Awesome. Awesome. Um, if you don't mind, I've got another question for you. Uh, Dude, I got actually, nothing else to do. This is my life. Come let's on. Let's go then. All right. Um, it's, it's actually a question proposed and uh, someone asked me this and I was like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. So I figured out. Uh, that's a good, a good answer question. when you don't know. Yeah. And it, no, yeah. seriously, that's, that's what you yeah. should say. It's okay. It's okay to not know something. Believe me. Oh, believe me. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. There's a lot of things I don't know. Um, how could our body structure potentially change the effectiveness of a specific exercise in terms of, of a hypertrophy stimulus? Does that question make sense? Um, I think so. I think so. Okay. Um, we need, first of all, we need to sort of define what a hypertrophy stimulus is. I think that would probably be useful, you know? And so I think, I think people have probably a picture in their head of what it is, but, but to express it is, is very difficult. Um, so under certain circumstances, so I need a certain amount of force production. I need a certain amount of exposure. So a duration of exposure, um, to, to stimulate the processes that would produce, um, the acquisition of stuff right? So basically hypertrophy is jamming more stuff into a space, right? So we just got to make more of it, right? And so the appropriate stimulation would be, like I said, enough weight and enough exposure, okay? So when we talk about enough weight, we're talking about magnitude of force. So I have to be able to produce a, a fairly high level of force. So at the extreme levels of, of hypertrophy, so everybody's seen these people, um, you know, at the extreme levels, they're incredibly, what we would say, strong. So they, they can produce a lot of force. So in the gym, they lift the numbers are really, really high. So they lift a lot of weight. So to do that, I should have a physical structure that predisposes to 
predisposes me to that capability. So the bias, and we, we talked about this a little bit when we're talking about the, the narrow infrastructural angles and wide infrastructural angles, the bias is going to be towards somebody that's a better force producer. So they're going to, you're not going to see somebody walking in that's um, would be referred to as tall and slender that's going to be packing on a great deal of muscle mass because their physical structure just doesn't predispose them to producing enough pressure. Because for me to lift something heavy, I have to be able to squeeze in on myself so hard that I create an incompressible column of water. And that's what actually lifts the weights. So my muscles have to squeeze me to lift, to make the weight go up. And so you're going to see a structural bias towards, and it doesn't have to be like the widest of the wide ISAs. It just has to be capable of that strong exhalation strategy. And so let's use the extreme representation of force production. Okay. So we would talk about say a power lifter. So like a super heavyweight power lifter is going to be that widest of wide representations. Okay. Maybe not the prettiest physique in the world, but they're carrying a ton of muscle mass. Um, they also carry more body fat because there is a contribution of, of the uh, compressive capabilities to that. So if I squeeze in on that, um, and, and I can make myself even more rigid and I can stack more weight on top of that. But your bodybuilder, your bodybuilder types, um, the, the athletes that have to carry more muscle mass, like a, say a, a, a linebacker uh, in the NFL, um, they're going to be biased towards a wider ISA representation because they have to be a high force producer to do that. Then you have to talk about exercise selection. So if I take somebody that's um, short and squatty in a wide ISA because of the physical structure, his ability to reach overhead is actually limited. So he's not going to be the world's greatest overhead presser if we're talking about the access to a range of motion. He can still press overhead and he might be incredibly strong under many circumstances, but the way that he gets the weight overhead is using a compensatory strategy versus access to range of motion. Whereas somebody that might be a little bit taller, a little bit less wide, would be a more efficient presser and therefore might be able to turn an overhead press into a much more effective exercise for themselves. So again, this just comes down to what are you physically built to do well? And then how do you do it? Mm -hmm. Do you think um, within the spectrum of wide versus narrow, there's individual limb length differences and things like uh -huh. that? How much influence do you think that has on this subject? It's all it's it's all physics, right? So so the 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 greater distance from the axis of rotation, the the um, much more uh, uh, forceful the external load is going to seem. So if I have a really long femur and a really long tibia, and I'm doing a a squat variation with load, okay, that axis of rotation is farther from from the the point of rotation, so to speak. Okay, if we're going to talk that kind of physics, it doesn't really exist in humans, but we can we can still use it as a model, right? Um, this sort of like your Euclidean geometry, if you will. Um, <clears throat> if we're going to use that representation, it's just a much more difficult. Uh, 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 it's much more difficult to to lift the weight just because the amount of force that would be required that far from from the the point of of uh, the the rotation. It's just it's like two hundred pounds on somebody that's really really long right? In regards to their bony structure, um, it seems like a heck of a lot more than somebody that's got a shorter limb where they can produce more force in, in that, that shorter distance of rotation. Do you ever see a power lifter 
that is, or someone who's just generally very strong on a very narrow end of the spectrum? It's rare. It's, it's not that it doesn't happen. It's just, it's just rare. There has to be other structural elements that, that make force production favorable. So like there are narrow, like we, we've got narrow ISA guys that play in the NBA, mm-hmm. right? They are great force producers, but they also have other elements of their physiology that would be compensatory to, so they might not produce pressure the same way that somebody else does, but maybe they've got um, like a shorter axial structure that allows the pressure differential to not have to travel such a great distance. That's favorable. Maybe they've got um, muscle orientations that are much more favorable in regards to their ability to utilize connective tissues. It's more favorable. So they don't need to produce as much force because they've got the, the, the connective tissue capabilities that, that turn them into kangaroos. And so again, you can't, while, while we can use these things to help us make decisions, it's like, you still have to look at the individual and you say, okay, he's got this, 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 and this as qualities. That's probably why he's going to produce this. You know, some athletes are not great athletes, but they're, but they're very intelligent in regards to the technical aspect of their sport. So you could be, let's just say that you're um, six foot 11 and you've got a wingspan of seven foot six, you got a four inch vertical jump, but you know how to position yourself around the basket and you got really long arms. So you don't really have to jump that high and you can still pull down a lot of rebounds because you understand the technical side of things. And you've got other things that compensate for a lack of force capability. So, you know, it's like, we'll see all kinds. And it doesn't mean that you can't improve certain aspects of certain people, but you really have to have a really strong model that you understand the principles that underlie what their capabilities represent. And if you can do that, then that's where you can make some favorable changes, but you're not going to turn, you're not going to take the kid that walks in at the age of 16 or 17, and he's got a four inch vertical jump. He's never going to jump 40 inches, right? I'm not going to turn him into the fastest guy. doesn't mean I can't help him to become better as an athlete. It just means that we have to understand where we can make those favorable changes based on his physical structure and whatever capabilities he brings to the table. So you kind of touched on the idea of maybe like the within the wide and narrows, you've got like this funnel and you've got the, um, I guess you would call it like the traffic cone shape. It's a pylon. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah. A, like a pylon and a, and a funnel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah your, your funnels. Yeah. So, so again, it's, you, you take a narrow ISA, that's a funnel. He's, he's going to be a much better force producer under most circumstances. And, and that's typically what you're going to kind of see, especially with your, with your taller individuals. Um, they're, they're above average height. They're not the extreme height. So like the, you know, your seven foot twos and seven foot fours are not the same as your six foot sixes and six foot sevens. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but, but again, it's like, you have to take the, the, the structural constraints into consideration as to how they are doing things. But again, it's, it's like, it just takes a little bit of understanding and you can make, make rather significant uh, progress in most cases. What are the general ways, if we were to take this pylon and, and the funnel, if you were to train these people and let's say they're both basketball players, yep. um, let's say for the purposes of, of the conversation, they're both like six foot six wings or whatever. And yeah. what, what would be some things that you would want to think about when programming exercises for them? So, so, so all you have to do is on, on the simplest level, you have to say, okay, um, what is their their bias in regards to their ability to overcome gravity? So, with with a with a pylon structure, so this is going to be a pelvis that has a circumference that is greater than the circumference of the thorax. So their bias 
their internal velocity, internally produced velocity. So this is the stuff on the inside of you is biased downward. So, so the velocity is greater downward than it is upward. Okay. So under those circumstances, they're already walking around with a 400 pound barbell on their shoulders. So how do I take away the imaginary 400 pound barbell? So these are the people that you have to unweight. So I have to teach them how to get their, their innards off of the bottom of the pelvis. And so we'll use strategies like the, one of the simplest ones to, to, to see um, is, is like a reverse banded squat. So, so this comes comes to us like primarily from the, the powerlifting realm because that's where it would be utilized to a significant degree. So this is where you would secure the, the band to the, to the top of the squat rack and around the bar so that in the lowest part of the squat, the band is actually assisting, right? So as I lower myself down and the band sort of accelerates me out of the bottom, it actually allows me to sort of throw my guts upward. So it actually reduces the internal um, velocity um, of my, my internal organs. And so that actually unweights the pelvis temporarily. So that allows me to, to actually um, create the, the force production that I need internally to push me upwards away from the ground. And so that, while that might not give me the 40 inch vertical jump, maybe it allows me to learn how to unweight my feet enough so I can reposition my feet more quickly. So, so this is like a first step quickness for somebody that might have what looks like heavy feet or the ability to move my feet fast enough to, again, to position myself for rebound. So now I have those types of capabilities. There's other ways to unweight in, internally, but, but that's like the easiest one to, to represent. Whereas your, your, your funnel shaped individuals, um, those are the people that Again, the velocity internally, um, much easier to bias upward. So these are the people that, that we would consider to have hang time, mm. right? Um, to give you an example, um, the average hang time for a vertical jump um, across a broad population is about, about half a second, okay? You can stay in the air about half a second. Um, I believe it, Michael Jordan's best, best jump, he was in the point I want to say it was either 0.78 or 0.82 seconds, right? Which is a ridiculously long time to be in the air. And so, so a lot of your, a lot of your jumping athletes, so like your long jumpers, your high jumpers and, and such, um, they will have certain, certain physical structures that will bias them to be able to maintain that upward velocity. They will acquire it in a much easier manner or be able to maintain it um, in a much easier manner. And therefore that's why they tend to bounce across the ground or they stay up in the air a little bit longer than everybody else does. So that there is, there is an element that, that um, can improve your hang time, but it's going to be structural. You're, you're born that way, basically. And yeah. if you were to, cause those people tend to respond quite well to traditional like strength and conditioning programming relative to someone who's more of a pylon, right? Yeah, to a certain to a certain extent, you can still you can still kill their abilities. I mean, it's really easy to make to make that mistake and you start chasing numbers. There's a there's there's very specific ways to identify, you know, when when load has been become excessive, and then you can look at all sorts of like com comparative types of jumps and things like that to determine like, okay, how much force do I really need? Is is more force going to be beneficial? Um, and, and again, but you still have to be careful with those people. They they tend to walk in as the better athlete already. Um, and again, you can still improve them to a certain degree. Um, but again, you, you, you always need to be careful with, with athletes because again, you start chasing the wrong thing. And again, we become the interference, right? Instead of making them better, we, we take away their superpowers. I I'm, not a big that, fan yeah. of that. I'm not a big fan of that. 
Yeah. When, when you've got an athlete that is um, not moving very well, because, you know, my lens is, you know, I like to help people improve how they feel, how they move and associate qualities with that. How does your uh, approach differ if you're thinking about, you know, I've got an in-season athlete here and, you know, I'm not going to have all of the time in the world to make a change. Um, I've heard you speak on this a little bit before, but I think it'd be an interesting topic of discussion. Like, is your approach going to be a little bit different if you have limited time, they have all the volume of in-season work? Right. Um, anytime, anytime you have a, you have a constraint, um, you, you, have, you have to respect that. And, and time is the number one because adaptations uh, in most circumstances do take a lot of time. And, and so, um, so for instance, sometimes I got, I got a lot of one-offs. So like, I'll see a, like a professional lights come through town and he goes, Hey, I need a tune up. Okay, cool. Um, guess what I don't do. I don't give them 12 different things to work on. What I do is I say, okay, this is the most important thing that we need to do. I'm going to give you everything that I can possibly give you that would be targeted towards that. And it's going to be a very small number of things. Uh-huh. Because again, I don't have a lot of time to do that. So take that same concept and now let's extrapolate that over three weeks. Okay, so I got three weeks. So what can you do in three weeks? Well, I can affect short-term energy systems over three weeks. I can maybe initiate some measure of neurologically based force production. Maybe I can impact speed over that short period of time. But if I need something that it would be more structural, so like say hypertrophy, or if we're gonna work on oxidative um, uh, energy production, all that requires the development of machinery, which takes more time to do that. So guess what? I can't even work on those goals. I don't have enough time to do that. Um, so again, you, you just have to consider it's like, okay, what ad- adaptation is favorable under these circumstances? How much time do I have? Can I even address that? And if I can't, then I gotta, I gotta focus on the stuff that, that I can have an impact on. Absolutely. That makes sense. That makes sense. I've got a lot more questions for you, but we have to we have to run we have uh some clients coming so uh bill thank you so much for your time man i'd love to do this again this was i have so much more i'd love to chat with you about about and uh thank you man thank you for your time yeah happy to do it happy to do it thanks for asking